Hello, Namaste. I'm Ruchira Gupta, your host for the podcast A Free Voice. I'm an Emmy-winning journalist who went on to start Apnea, an NGO which works against sex trafficking. I have dedicated my life to amplifying voices of the most marginalized people in the world. I'm also the debut author of scholastic book I Kick and I Fly. In this podcast, I will talk to survivors, activists, and storytellers who use their voice to make a difference in the lives of young people. How does an idea turn into action? How do you change a tragedy into recognizing your own powers? Together, we will examine and reimagine the world we want. Yes. I still think that being forced to leave your home out of fear is one of the worst injustices as a human being, one that you can face. Everything you love is stolen and you're, you risk your life to live in a place that means nothing to you and where, because of where you're from, a country you've never known, um, now you know only war and terrorism, um, you're not really wanted. So you spend the rest of your life years, of your years, longing for what you left behind while praying to not be deported. That was from uh, The Last Girl by uh, Nadia Murad. Um, Her story of captivity and her fight against the Islamic State. You just heard Bella Hunaki read from one of her favorite books. The Last Girl by Nadia Murad. Bella is a survivor of child trafficking from Togo to America. Now, she actually advises the Presidential Commission on Law Enforcement and the Administration of Justice. She advises the Department of Labor and the Office of Child Labor, Forced Labor and Human Trafficking. She also advises the Department of Justice, President's Commission for Law Enforcement, and the Health and Human Services uh, on issues related to trauma-informed care for survivors of human trafficking. She holds a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and Spanish and a master's degree. And she's uh, just about to get certified once more in a new degree in psychology and psychiatry. Relentless Bella is bold and beautiful as she goes about her work. Listen to her today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I am very excited to be here uh, and to engage in this conversation with you. So thank you for giving me the platform and the opportunity to share my thoughts with you. My first question to you, Bella, this morning is that how did a girl from Michigan end up becoming an advisor to the powerful U.S. government and all its various departments and come live in Washington, D.C. to do so? (laughs) Thank you. Um, Well, you know, it's been a long journey, uh, but I'm actually not originally from Michigan. I'm from Western Africa, Togo. I say Michigan is my home um, because that's where I spent most of my time. Uh, But originally I was born in West African Togo, and I'm sure you know where that is. Um, And so I... uh, well, I first became a, a victim of trafficking uh, when I was about 12 years old. Um, and through that experience, um, I after after my experience being trafficked, I was later transitioned to Michigan where I saw refuge, right? Where I entered the child welfare system, where I was physically based. And so I spent a few years in Michigan uh, pursuing uh, reunification with my birth family, uh, reuniting with them, finding out where they are, uh, and and reconciling with them. And after that, pursuing my education, receiving my bachelor's and my master's degree. And after that, <laughs> I I uh, received an offer uh, from my first job was, was working as an immigration officer as a an asylum officer with the Department of Homeland Security after grad school. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to go here. So that's how I ended up in D.C. That's quite an incredible journey, Bella. And, you know, just for all the listeners who are out there, they must be thinking, how did a girl from Togo 
come even to the United States. So could you tell us a little bit about what Togo was like and how did you end up in the United States? Yes. So Togo uh, is my birth my birth country, as I mentioned. Um, and so that's where my mother and my father are for, from. Um, and so uh, when I was a young girl, uh, I had a relative who proposed that I would come to the U.S. and study, uh, pursue education. Uh, she thought I was so bright. Uh, that I will pursue higher education in the U.S. And obviously, because, you know, you know, when you're from a foreign country, when someone, especially a family member, proposed that you will have this opportunity where you go abroad and you study and you become this great thing, it, it's like, uh, it seems so promising, right? And so uh, that's how uh, I think I was lured uh, into um, the victimization. And so um, that's how I became vulnerable is that this person who is a family member uh, convinced my parents that this would be an opportunity for me to pursue education in a different country, U.S. of all. Um, and so from that, um, it, it, the reality didn't paint out to be what was proposed. Um, and so myself and 22 other girls uh, found ourselves uh, being exploited for um, being uh, trafficked. Was that in Michigan? No, that was in Newark, New Jersey. And so we left Togo and then we arrived in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, this would have been in 2005. And so back then, there is not a lot of governance in terms of, you know, the TVPA, the law that governs trafficking victims domestically was enacted in 2000. Right. And so this was happening in 2005. So really, there was no uh, in terms of like application of law at this time. So uh, when we got to New York, New Newark, New Jersey, that's where we were trafficked to. And that's where the house was. That's where the criminality took place. I see. And how were you even able to get out of that situation of trafficking? Yeah, um, Mr. Cheetah, I think. You know, to be honest with you, uh, because I was a young girl, um, and this is all of us, we were minors, all 22 of us, we were minors at this point. And really, we didn't even speak English, right? We were not allowed to speak English. Uh, we were not allowed to have contact with general public. We are not allowed. We were very isolated. And so it wasn't, I don't think that my mind conceptualized what freedom meant or what because it's normal, right? In my culture in Togo, it's not foreign for children to be um, kind of participating in some kind of domestic work. Uh, and so the idea that this is like, you know what, you all are actually being exploited wasn't like, it didn't really cross our minds because it's, it's you are thought to, you know, take care of home and things like that. But Certainly, there's certain um, abnormal um, activities that obviously was, you know, exploitation, it's very vivid. And so uh, when we were coming here, we were assigned parents. We were assigned siblings. And so I know, you know, I was I was a, a, a minor, but I knew my biological parents. I knew my siblings. And so when you were being assigned parents, when you were being assigned siblings, like overriding your reality. And so. Then you're like, okay, this is, okay, for me to clean the house, that's like normal, right, in my culture. But for me to receive a different family, that's abnormal. And so you start picking out the differences, right? But as a, a, a young child or as a minor, as an, as an adolescent, you feel like you, I know this is wrong, but how do I, who do I tell, although I don't speak the language? And even if I speak the language, will people believe me? And so that is like, that was the reality. And I think that's the reality for many people who find themselves in exploitive situation is the cognitive dissonance, right? Is you're witnessing one thing, but it it just contradicts, right? It's like two conflicting truths. Very true. And you're being gaslighted all the time because what's happening to you is something that uh, is not uh, articulated at any moment. So, And if you speak about pain or horror or trauma, 
then you're told, no, no, it's not really pain. This is just a survival. Or if you say that there's trauma, they'll say, no, no, that's you imagining the trauma. It's not traumatic. So how did you then actually get out? Like, did someone come and help you get out? Did you get out on your own? How? It was a long, ongoing um, process, right? So I mentioned that at this at the time, present time, then it was 22 people, but we all arrived in different time frame, right? So she had been trafficking people in the 90s before I even got there. And so some of these minors, they aged at this point. And so apparently there was an ongoing investigation way before I even arrived, uh, suspicion, you know, and because of the way that their trafficking operations were formed, um, they assign, they give us all different names. It's like, it's like erasing your identity. And, and if you are a child and someone coerce you to give you different name, a different uh, family over time, and then you reverse that every day. So you wake up and your name is no longer Rachira. Um, it's perhaps, you know, Sarah. And Sarah is now, instead of actual Sarah being 12, Sarah is now 18. And Sarah is to operate as an 18-year-old. Is uh, Sometimes you might have been married. Some of them were married. Um, uh, and so every day we rehearse these, I did this new identity. It's a literal carefully uh my um conditioning right and so over time you're rehearsing that and so this is the reality for all of us new names new identity and you rehearse that every single day you wake up because the intention was that when the general public interact with you it has to be consistent with your fake identity we all have fake passport as you know um you don't just come to the u.s right so we have a documentation but that wasn't real. Everything that we have in terms of our our visa information wasn't real. And so the fake profile that they had created had to be consistent with our reality. And unfortunately for us, that meant that we had to override, we had to rehearse it. And so uh, at this point, Homeland Security, uh, the, the agency ICE, right, Immigration and Law Enforcement, um, at this time, they were conducting visa frauds because that's how she was able to bring all of us in is somebody will want a letter of visa and she has someone at the embassy who will sell the information to her. And then she would traffic girls that way for labor or whatever, commercial sexual exploitation. And so um, so ICE was conducting these investigation of um undocumented entrance and then they saw this like increased number of this person that's bringing children in but again you know this is early 2000s so there was not a lot of indicators of what we might know as okay exploitation as as much as it is now uh, so through that investigation they started to follow trends and that trend led them to us um, and I think some of the girls that were there before me started reaching out to people because, you know, as you know, uh, people who exploit people, they don't have a moral conduct to say, I'm only going to exploit you until a certain point. And there's no never a, a ceiling. Right. So that's how we got discovered. And eventually uh, that's how we got um, found and so that started the process of identifying all of us and relocating or locating our families back in our country. I see. And so then you were taken and put into a foster care, into the foster care system in Michigan. And that's why you call Michigan home. Yes, yes. You know, I quite didn't know because we were, we were, all we did was work, right? Uh, from six to midnight, from all, that's all we did. So uh, I didn't even know where Michigan was when I first heard of it. And because the the length of time we spent together, when we were definitely, when we were certainly, we were found, we were separated. Um, it, it felt like you're losing another family, right? But when we went to Michigan, I was like, this place is very cold. There's, there's nothing but grass here. What am I doing here? Right. But uh, it eventually became home for me. But at the time, Michigan was the most probable state because they had a large number of 
uh, it started as the foster system for the children who are not, you know, U.S. citizens. Um, so we had to, there was no, I don't think there was at the time, I don't think there are other states that this program existed in. And Michigan really facilitated that because they had a structure for the child soldiers of Sudan and other refugee kids. So it was easier for us to go to Michigan because they already had the structure there. And when we got in the plane going to Michigan, um, there was a sense of like, again, like separation again. But when we got there, then we got assigned to new families again. Uh, At this time, they didn't look like us, right? This is like West Michigan. Everyone is white. And so you get there and they say, well, welcome home. This is mom and dad. This is your sister. And I'm like, no, I have a mom and dad. I have a sister. I have three sisters. I have a brother. And and this that's who I want. And so, but when you are assigned into immediately, there was this sense of resentment immediately on my end, right? And so these are really good people. I They meant well, but the fact that I was giving an, a family again at the airport, it, it seemed like I'm, my reality is being override. And so I think... And even being in the foster care system and having to work in foster care system as a professional myself, it's a very, it's a very complicated, multi-layer dynamic that is, I don't think there's one way to fix it. Um, so a lot of my experiences, because of the trauma I had endured, I had changed multiple homes. Um, but there are uh, situations where, you know, you're, you're neglected. Because again, this is not your biological family. You're suddenly placed in this new home. They don't know. They have an idea of what happened to you that got there. They either A, don't have the capacity, the training. They don't have the dedication to really address children's needs. So they just play the guessing game. And some of them are really, really terrible people who are in it for the money. And so my experience wasn't explicitly as others. Uh, but I don't think if I had it, I don't think I would have chose a foster family instead of that of my own. It's not, no matter how good the family is, it's not ever a good experience because it's it's like trying to convince a, a bunch of strangers every two weeks that you're worth, you're worthy of food, that you're worthy of a bed. It's like trying to constantly bargain your weight to humanity as a child, which can be very, uh, very mentally depleting. How old were you then? I would have been 13. I see. And did you stay with the same family till you went to college? No, I think I had about maybe seven, seven, eight homes. Mm -hmm. So each time you were told that this is your mother and this is your father? Yes. Yes. After a while, again, um, you know, the idea situation of just in child welfare, especially, you know, people enter child welfare for different reasons. You know, if you're U.S. born, your parents might have had different issues that got you into foster care. But for those who are foreign nationals, those who have had something happen to them in country, um, I think for the most part, I would have decreased the number of time I could have changed foster homes. But because of my own presenting issues at the time, I was a runaway a lot of the time. Uh, I just wasn't assimilating okay because then, you know, after you're no longer being exploited, the reality sets and you have to relive things of the past. You don't know, you don't have the skill to deal with that. So you, it shows in anger, it shows in so much other ways so my my foster parents meant well but I wasn't at the time I wasn't a child that fit into their family dynamics so there was a conflict there so I had to constantly change but that did um there was something good that came of it like I stayed with a family that who didn't speak English or her language was Spanish and that's the only family that could take me and so because of that I started learning Spanish and now I'm fully fluent in Spanish because I had to, she didn't speak English and I didn't speak Spanish. So I had to learn 
it was easier for me to learn. So now I speak Spanish fully. Yes, I hear you. And I noticed that you went on to get a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and Spanish. So obviously Spanish stood you in good stead. But how did you even have the tenacity to do, get into college, sit through classes, have a concentrated attention span to get a degree, not just a bachelor's degree, you went on to get a master's degree too. So how, how were you able to get over the trauma or hold the trauma in such a way that you could channelize it to become an expert on criminal justice? Yeah, I um, I don't know, right? But I know that, you know, I remember at one time I was in, um, I was going through like, I, w- I changed homes because one of the families was like, we can't deal with you no more. And so I would constantly be in transition. Like there was no stability in my life in any way. And, and that also included education. I value education, but I just didn't, I wasn't, I didn't have the mental capacity to, to really think that I would ever achieve much uh, because there was just, you know, like I wanted to be reunified with my family. I, I'm tired of people, of trying to earn my presence with other families. And so I remember sitting in one of the, like the, the homes I was in, I had run away the night before and they found me. Obviously, when you're in foster care, you can't just leave like that. You can't uh, because there's core order for you to be there. So every time you displace, the core has to be aware. But I just kept changing. And one time, and then also because I was moving a lot, I was never at a school at one time enough to progress, right? And so uh, I remember thinking like, like this is, this is like, I don't, there's nothing to aim to, right? There's nothing um and then i remember having a conversation with one of my um i ended up going to juvenile justice um and i was having a conversation with one of my like uh juvenile care youth workers and um and she really was very inspiring right and i think at this point i would have been uh 16 um but i think it was a combination of faith uh, it was a combination of um, just willing or wanting to be better and do better and not allowing my history to define my future. Um, and so I I finally was placed in a foster home where I had stability. So this, it looks like if I ran away, instead of saying, you're not coming back here, she left the door open. Like, okay, hey, I know you're going to run away tonight. But if you do do that, uh, there's food in the fridge. If you want to come, you can come back and eat and then run away again. And so I was, okay, fine. I'll just come back and eat the food and run away again. Um, So there's no um, punishment. Uh, There's no sense of uh, rejection, right? And so when I would mess up, she was there. She was consistent. Um, she was a grace. She extended a lot of grace and she believed in me. So I was in a community of faith where, um, somebody would take me to tutoring. Somebody would take me to do things that I like to do. Um, I wanted to play piano. Somebody would take me to teach me piano. And so slowly I started like, okay, so I'm smart. And, um, through that, I, I was like, okay, so I'm going to, try to take the ACT or I'll pass this exam. And so slowly I started building and I, I started taking youth leadership position. I started playing soccer and really just defining my new reality. And through that, um, I was able to uh, finish high school, uh, graduated with honors um, and, you know, applying to colleges um, and, and pursuing higher education. So, you know, you understand trauma so well. And I was wondering, uh, you know, but you chose to concentrate uh, your attention on criminal justice and even the language of Spanish, right, for both your bachelor's degree and master's degree. Why did you not choose psychiatry or psychology? Uh, Why did you choose criminal justice and Spanish? I, so I have my... um 
my most of my background is divided into so many pieces. Um, I'm actually pursuing my licensure in, you know, mental health care. So I will be a licensed uh, therapist and specializing in trauma. But earlier, earlier, my early, well, I'm 29 now, but earlier, my early, early 20s, I did a lot of intense care in criminal justice. I thought about going to law school to prosecute uh, trafficking victims. But I think most of my early career drive was more about like vengeance, I think. And vengeance was driving most of my career path is how can I get these people back? Wherever you are, wherever country you are, I'm going to find you and I'm going to make sure that you're prosecuted. I'm going to make sure I work with the government. That is literally what drove my career most of my early 20s. And sometime after grad school, I was like, you know what? I'm at peace now. Uh, I'm I'm healing. I've healed now. And so um, I'm, I've changed towards more compassion. So now I focus more on, uh, on my day job. I work with the U.S. government, right? And then my side activities, I do a lot of anti-trafficking support and then my other divided time is to really dedicate that to um, mental health support for survivors or any victims of crime because I see I understand that very deeply and personally how uh, debilitating it can be because on the outside right I can be seen as very high achieving um, but my success and my achievements were not rightfully driven initially uh, because it was drive driven by revenge. And now I achieved my way through my trauma. And now that I don't need to achieve, I've healed. So I'm at peace now. And so that's my advocacy and my the spaces I show up in is different. I don't know if that makes sense, Richie. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does because you know um, you have to find peace to be able to help others somehow, right? And uh, revenge is a good fa good motivator because it comes out of rage, and rage can help you uh, when everything else has come to a standstill. You know, to look for the freedom to push you as an incentive out of your situation of exploitation. But then there's a process. So it totally makes sense to me that um, do you still want the traffickers to be put in jail though oh absolutely that would never change i don't me think me too <laughs> exactly so that's the thing but you would just go about it in a more holistic way that yes they are yes. put in jail and victims recover too i i yes. get you i totally get you and you know also the secondary trauma that we have to deal with uh, which uh, you know when you keep listening to people uh, who have been traumatized and they are, you know, you listen to new victims all the time as an NGO leader. I have to do that, right? So many people come forward and tell me the story of their lives. And I think it hasn't affected me because it wasn't my experience. But somehow, because I'm an empath, it gets under my skin, right? And uh, I don't know how it uh, surfaces. Sometimes it'll surface in uh, frustration, that why can't the world see it the way I do? Or in absolute urgency, you know, like I'll push things through, come what may, you know, I won't let anything stand in my way when I'm trying to do something for a victim. And if someone has less compassion or has less understanding, I won't uh, understand why they have that uh, less compassion or less understanding. So there's a rage for people who will not do stuff with the same commitment, uh, you know, no quarter given or taken right yeah. uh, but now over the years I've learned that you know different people are different places in their lives and you just have to carry everyone along in this mission because I have a dream you know in a, that there should be a world and there will be a world in which no human being is bought or sold and relentlessly I will work to it and I keep inventing different ways because sometimes I think it's the NGO, sometimes I think it's sharing the story like I'm doing in a book. Sometimes, uh, you know, I think, no, it's probably healthcare, you know, or working on a law so uh, or changing the policy or a law in a country. I keep inventing different ways. Sometimes I think, oh, maybe it's a movie. But the goal and the aim is always the same. For example, even this podcast, A Free Voice, 
is really to amplify the voices of survivors who have found their free voice and used it to make a difference in the lives of others and you bella are of course a free voice and my question to you is that when did you know that you had a free voice you know that's a that's an interesting question um i i when you were talking about different ways of combating and how you you show up in advocacy spaces in order to um to really see a world where there are no people who are bought or sold uh, and even people who need to really buy someone or exploit them for their own comfort um i think your question as to when did i know you know or realize i was freed um it it brought me into a time where um I was reflecting on like what does freedom mean for me um and particularly I remember going to court and the day that I heard that my trafficker had been sentenced I was it was like a uncomfortable because there's this thing I chased so long and then when I had it it felt incomplete and it felt like I almost was not satisfied with that right um and so it's it's difficult for me to embrace my individual freedom um because then i have to also accept is a dichotomy because i have to also accept that at some point something that supposed to be a human right a natural right i didn't have um and so whenever i try to celebrate or recognize freedom my own freedom it's a uncomfortable space and uh, understanding because then it don't tell me again that I just at some point I I didn't have the space and capacity individually to live life on my own terms and it was nothing I did to bring that up on myself and so I don't know how to answer that like I don't know how to answer when did I know I was free because then I have to accept that at some point I wasn't free um like i have to celebrate freedom as if it's not something that is supposed to just be a natural right um so the way i conceptualize it now is just um seeing it as like a duty being a duty bound like i almost try to not acknowledge anything about freedom i just say that okay you know what i'm in a position i have the capacity i have the understanding now to do something so i see it as like it's my duty to make sure that something that is supposed to be a natural given right be offered to anyone and anyone who is trying to be or anything um that is trying to be a barrier of that then naturally i have to stand against them and so that's how i don't know if that makes sense but that's how i try to rationalize it, at least to myself that's what keeps me going regardless of any obstacle that i face is to see that this is like i'm duty bound to making sure that that is something that is supposed to be a natural right to people because people are supposed to just be people live life on their own term um should not be seen as like freedom because that mean that i'm accepting imprisonment of any sort so that's how does that make sense richira So a poem that I, I like to recite uh, along myself and as, as well as those I work with, um, it is a poem by Tupac Shakur. Um, it's titled, The Rose That Grew From Concrete. Did you hear about the rose that grew from a crack of concrete? Proving nature's law is wrong, it learned to walk without having feet. Funny it seems, but by keeping its dreams, it learned to breathe fresh air. Long live the rose that grew from concrete, when no one else ever cared that was suleiman masood reading a poem about a rose that grows in concrete 
Suleiman is a subject matter expert on domestic labor trafficking and male victimization. He has immense advocacy experience. He's a lawyer. He specializes in criminal justice and he advises uh, the State Advisory Council on Human Trafficking, the Task Force to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons. Um, he has used his immense experience and knowledge of the law to help survivors of trafficking. Thank you, Suleiman, for being on our podcast, A Free Voice. Of course, no problem at all. Um, I just wanted to make one quick question. I am not yet a lawyer. I'm on my way to being one. Uh, I'm currently uh, in uh, my final year of law school. And I'm sure you're going to make even more miracles for those who are the most victimized and the most vulnerable human beings in the world with your law degree, just as much as you have done with your criminal justice degree. So thank you, Suleiman, for everything you do on behalf of survivors. How did you even get connected to this subject? What made you think that you want to devote your life to fighting domestic labor trafficking and male victimization? Yeah, when I think about activism, uh, and the question I get is, why would you choose something so specific uh, to be a part of and to talk about? And the reality is, I didn't choose the activism, uh, it chose me. Um, the, the community um, that I, I was working with and I was going to school at the time, um, you know, it, it started very small, at a very small local level out in California. Uh, and working with local prosecutors um, who, who work uh, to better understand what human trafficking is, to work with victim service agencies, uh, to work with nonprofits, many of them at the time uh, really didn't have an idea of what human trafficking looked like. Um, and the image that they had at the time really involved uh, a form of sex trafficking, uh, involving uh, predominantly involving women uh, and those uh, uh, who may identify as women. Uh, for me, with my background, um, as somebody with a lived experience uh, in labor trafficking specifically, and one of the few uh, that speak about labor trafficking from the sense of uh, somebody who was U.S. born and domestic labor trafficking. Um, uh, th there was a, a big learning curve from both sides. Um, so starting at a very small local level, uh, I, I was able to help the community I was serving at the time while the community was helping me to better understand um, ways for us to, to work together and ways for us to, to, to really address it and bring awareness to the subject. So through some of the local advocacy I've done, I've been able to work with other um, local prosecutors' offices, local law enforcement out in California, which then extended out to the larger state, um, and then later now uh, currently being working with federal agencies and federal entities. When you said that somebody who's been very close and has been on both sides of the experience of labor trafficking, what does that mean? Yeah, it's somebody who understands... Um, for, with, when somebody has a lived experience of labor trafficking, it's understanding the internal and external uh, perspectives of, of what it means to, to combat labor trafficking. Um, for somebody with a lived experience like myself, I'm able to understand all of the gaps in the ways that service providers uh, may have taken missteps in providing um, attention to those that are victims that may be uh, considered a vulnerable population, right? In this situation, maybe males, maybe South Asians, maybe um, the population itself of those that are exploited through labor. Um, so for somebody to understand from an internal perspective and uh, their own lived experiences and the way that they've responded to services, it's then being able to work out a professional uh, side and uh, through the professional lens, being able to understand what gaps and policies exist, what systems are being developed or what systems have been in place that have created, continuously created barriers um, where whether it's through use of imagery, maybe used through language, maybe the way that um, we as professionals are, are trying to provide accommodations to labor trafficking uh, survivors, it may not be done in a way that's responsive to their needs. I want you to explain to my listeners uh, who are listening to a free voice, um, you know, how your lived experience actually concretized and changed into this um, voice to amplify and make a difference in the lives of others. And you used a very great civile with the poem you chose of a rose, uh, you know, blossoming in concrete. Can you tell us a little bit about your own story, about how you blossomed in the concrete? What happened? Where were you trafficked from? What did you end up doing? How did you even get out? 
Yeah, I, I will I will try to answer that um, without providing too much detail. Uh, I, again, that's out of respect for those that have may have been involved um, and those that because it involves multiple parties out of respect for them and for their own well-being. Uh, I'd like to just uh, only address myself and, and that sort of thing. So I can tell you that um, my lived experience, unfortunately, it came from somebody who um, who fabricated their background, somebody who falsified documents, and somebody who uh, identified themselves as a member of gov government, a uh, member of federal government. Um, this was an individual at the time uh, that we understood uh, to be very important um, in, within the United States government. Uh, and uh, I think at the time, because I was a minor at the time, uh, this was somebody for, for me growing up in, in a rural town, um, uh, someone we've never interacted with before. Um, just to speak a little bit about culture, uh, my background, my family, we, we come from Pakistan. So in coming from Pakistan, the one teachings that we have is you always respect authority, no matter who it is, right? Um, just as much as we respect our elders. I mean, the one example I can give you, my mom would always tell me, you know, when you go to school, your teachers are like your parents, so you need to treat them as such. So the same respect came to somebody who identified as law enforcement. So at the time, this was an individual who, um, uh, I, I think through there are many different types of communication, um, was able to speak to me at a level that made me feel that, um, uh, you know, it was it was a it was a type of mentorship that that he was he was offering that I felt like I, I could I could take advantage of, right? Uh, for somebody like myself who was a straight A student in high school, uh, somebody who came um, from modest means but did the, you uh, made the most out of those experiences and and was able to succeed academically. Um, trying to engage in this kind of mentorship I felt was beneficial at the time. So through this type of relationship that was developed over a span of several years, because uh, uh, I hope your listeners will best understand when it comes to grooming, it's not something that's done overnight, right? When you're grooming somebody, enforcing somebody to adopt a certain ideal, it can take months or even years on that, right? So in the relationship that I, I had with this individual, it expanded from me being a minor all the way to me being an adult. It then got to a point where this individual uh, with one form of labor trafficking is a form of uh, debt, debt, uh, debt bondage. So this is uh, through use of, um, I would say, the use of threats, the use of uh, manipulation through, through threatening language. Uh, this individual shared with me that because um, he identified as a government official, this was somebody that, uh, you know, they were paying for our security, they were paying for my well-being, um, just a lot of different uh, um, accusations that, that this individual was using and saying that because of the types of services that he provided to myself uh, and my family, it was at that moment that we were required to pay that money back, right? So uh, unfortunately, this was a situation where um, in most labor trafficking situations, individuals are put in a place where if debt bondage is common or, or if a trafficker is enforcing a debt over somebody's head, that individual must find some way of getting some le uh, work authorization or some kind of um, uh, approval to work somewhere, right? Some, some form of legal work or, or even work that is done under the table. So in my situation, because I was a US citizen, the benefit that the trafficker had was I had easier access to work multiple jobs and work lawful employment, right? So customer service jobs, working for you know corporations, that sort of thing. Um, so at that moment, uh, I found myself months later working multiple jobs at a time. So um, the, the way that I describe this is, is working about 20 hours a day uh, or 18 hours a day, sleeping for two hours. And to ensure that uh, the, the threats were instilled in me, I was getting, it was both physical and verbal abuse for, for the next four hours, right? Um, and as the month, as again, as the months approached uh, with any trafficker, greed is a common theme that they have in order to make sure that uh, the money that they feel is owed to them um, is done and it's, uh, it's carried out in a way where uh, physical abuse, uh, verbal abuse is, is done in a certain way to, to send a message that this individual must stay loyal to, to them so they can continue to obtain money. Um, so, so the threats uh, continue to escalate over the months and it got to the point where I was very weak. So fast forward uh, about a year and a half later, 
Um, this is back in 2013. Uh, this is where I realized enough was enough. Uh, my family didn't really know much about it. Um, I'm not going to go into detail about that again. Respect for them. Um, but it got to a point where, I, I, uh, again, I, uh, there were many signs showing at that time where I needed to leave and I needed to find a way to escape. Um, for many traffickers, their belief is that there is no way that they can escape. There could be cultural stigma. There could be pressures from their family to provide and produce for their family so they could send money home. My situation was a little different. Mine was because all the every paycheck I've ever worked went to that uh, individual. The only way for me to leave was to try to escape and just hope for the best, right? So um, I, I made a good faith effort to do so. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, you go first. Okay. So I'll say through the help of a coworker, I was able to escape. Um, and uh, obviously it took a lot of support from my family. It took a lot of time to, to discuss this with them. To, uh, in addition, it, it was a criminal case at that time um, that, that was being brought on against the trafficker, which through all of these different modes, uh, I was able to, to find a path to healing. And uh, you know, fast forward close to nine years now, um, close to nine years now, um, I've been able to, to build a life outside of that. Congratulations. It takes a lot of courage and also a commitment to building a future to really find light at the end of the tunnel. But also, you know, I'm curious, like, were you trafficked into manual labor? Like, did you have to do 20 hour shifts of sheer manual labor? What kind of work was it? Yeah, so as a miner, it started out as minor uh, as manual labor. So it could be done through electrical work. It could be done through painting. It could be through moving furniture, um, a lot of that kind of thing. But uh, again, um, that's done as a minor. When when I became uh, an adult, uh, because I had legal authorization to work as an adult, working regular everyday jobs, you know, like convenience stores, gas stations, um, restaurants, right? All these things I was either doing uh, through lawful means or unlawful means, but the in terms of that type of labor, but every paycheck I was receiving from that company, it was going straight to uh, this individual. So um, you are saying that in America, where we talk about the great land of liberty, uh, you were working openly in a gas station or in some kind of convenience store, and yet you felt you couldn't run away. And this is just because of the debt bondage and the manipulation of your mind or were also were other means used? I want to educate the listeners of A Free Voice to understand how that can happen in this country. Yeah, I think, it, I think for somebody who hasn't gone through complex trauma, it's very easy to ask and take a step back and say, well, it's not like they, this individual has physical chains. It's not like this individual... Is put in a situation where there's no way they can get out, right? Um, or they're placed in a room and they're locked a certain amounts of uh, hours. But what I can share is, again, it's a cultural understanding, right? When when you're in a situation uh, where there are there are very uh, there are threats put at you every single day, um, and there's there's a, a level amount of brainwashing put in you every single day through physical means, through verbal means, it puts an individual at a place where they feel like there is no way they can leave. If this is an individual, again, I have to paint the picture, especially if this is an individual who has been able to identify themselves as a government official, right? If it's somebody at the highest level of government that you believe at that time, right? Um, it's like the, the way I can paint the picture is it's, a, it's somebody from the FBI calling you every day saying you have to do X, Y, and Z. You know, for, for, for so long, we even just an everyday scam that we hear is, you know, those voicemail recordings or those calls we get that says, I'm a member of the FBI, your family member owes $10,000, you must pay by this time or else we'll, we'll, we'll come after you and arrest you. You know, it's those robocalls or those scam calls that people on a day, get on a daily basis. At first glance, right, you may listen to that and say, no, there's no way that, I, um, that this person can be a member of the FBI. But for some others who have no experience with law enforcement or have been taught culturally that they must respect law enforcement and that kind of teaching and that individual is showing multiple ways. They're going out of their way to identify themselves as this individual, right? Um, at that point, that's where it, it becomes harder for somebody to 
to accept that this is a lie. It becomes harder for somebody to accept that this is a fabrication, right? It takes, it, it, for me, it took, it took some time uh, when, again, when this went through a criminal process, it took time uh, for me to unlearn many of the things that, that were in, uh, brainwashed, uh, that were manipulated inside me, and that was through actual law enforcement. It's fascinating because it sounds so much like, you know, what women talk about when they experience domestic violence, you know, that they just cannot exit, you know, and it's always like five minutes too late because first they agree because it's just a small offense and then a little more and a little more and then they can't imagine leaving. Uh, but, um, you know, what was the trigger that actually made you snap this link? I think at that time my health was deteriorating a lot. Um, so it was at a point where, uh, I basically reached a point where physically it was very difficult for me to continue to do what was being asked. Um, so at that point, it was just a sign. Um, again, it was a sign from, from many different areas, but I, I just kept thinking about my parents one day. Um, I kept thinking about my family and again, they had no idea what was going on with me, right? There, there was a lot of, again, there's a lot of detail I don't need to provide here. But um, the, at that point, that, that was all I could think about was, you know, maybe I just need to say um, goodbye to my parents one last time. I just need to say I just need to see them one last time because my health was at a point where it was uh, it was very bad. I was on the point of just collapse altogether. So um, that's really what, what drove brought it to that point um, where, where, again, it was the first time in I would say three, four years I actually thought for myself because during that time, again, just. As you, the example you painted about a domestic violence survivor, right? Um, somebody who's actually experiencing it, everything in their mind feels very robotic. It feels scripted. It feels in a way like if I don't do this, this is what's going to happen to me. So let me follow this and try to live through the day. You know, that's right. That's right. And so you managed to escape with the help of a coworker, and then found legal help and. Uh, you know, the fact that the case went through the criminal justice system was possibly healing for you and empowering. But, you know, a lot of people like to put that life behind them. You know, it's so full of trauma and pain and bad memories. But you went on to embrace the subject and become a subject matter and continue to work for other victims of trafficking. Why? It's very easy to forget about the past. It's very easy to drop everything, start a new chapter, move to a different state, move to a different community, have a, have a new identity altogether. It's very easy to do that. Um, I think for me, again, I have to speak back to, to, to culture, right? Um, at this time, uh, the healing journey was not empowering, if you want the truth. Um, because the when you're in a place where, again, you have you have very concerned parents, you have parents that care about me, that cared about me, loved me, um, raised me, obviously did everything in their power to make sure that uh, I, uh, I grew up to, 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 I grew up with respect, I grew up with love in my heart. Um, so obviously at that time, um, it, it uh, I would say for me personally, all of those teachings I had, um, I felt that it was too easy for me to just forget about the fact that other people go through this too. Um, it, it was, it got to a point where, you know, through, through many, again, with the way that our culture has, as unfortunately has taught us, it's put us in a place where it's saying, uh, honor plays the biggest role in our families, right? Um, the way I grew up and again, with South Asian culture, honor in most cases, it, it's up there with family, right? Um, it's your religion, it's your honor, and then it's you. So when that honor is, is, is affected or it's, it's tarnished or it's, it's put in a way that that affects what that family's image looks looks like. Simple phrase is right? What are others going to think about what happened to this? And I think so much of my 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 healing journey, um, I kept hearing that over and over again. Um, and I said, what what people need to really understand um, is we need to stop hiding our our trauma. We need to stop putting ourselves in a place where we need to mask this. We need we need to. Uh, suppress it, and when we have family of our own, um, we we teach them that we, we're continue to pass that down, right? Uh, because it is, I have to be honest, it is a generational curse. Um, when we have trauma or we're inheriting trauma from our families, 
um, where we're where we're not teaching a cycle of healing. We're instead just recycling the trauma. So I think the Lokyakaenge saying that I, I hear all the time, um, it, it really was getting to a point where, uh, at least for myself and, and for the communities I serve and for the families that I, I represent, um, uh, it really is important for us to to really embrace healing as opposed to suppressing our, our feelings and thoughts. Very true. Like first we have to acknowledge the issue, face it head on, only then can we deal with empowering. And, you know, by not only have you taken it head on, you've gone on to help other victims. So obviously you're listening to their stories, you know where the gaps are and you're figuring out the best way of uh, helping them through the cases. Um can you describe any case which has been specially meaningful to you? It's hard for me to pinpoint one um, without, you know, without isolating the others. I think what I can tell you is I think meeting somebody from day one um, and then being able to connect with them on day 180, you know, um, and connect with them at a point, maybe six months, one year down the road and just see their growth, um, their, their personal development, their professional development. I think for me that that's really what I care about. Um, what, what I what I have learned right in, in in my journey as a professional is that everybody goes through something, right? It may not be as egregious as human trafficking. Uh, it may be somebody going through a one-parent household, maybe somebody going through um, domestic violence. It may be anything. It may be discrimin any form of discrimination. But the reality is, how are we responding to that, right? How are we taking our individual selves and finding ways to get the help that we need? to find our support system, to be able to be in a place where they can accept resources and even find ways to tailor the resources, right? Those are the things that are important to me. Um, so when I'm working with somebody that has a lived experience, um, that, that's the one thing I care about is, is making sure that they're putting themselves in a, in, a success, in a situation where they can become financially stable. They're in a place where they, can, uh, they have a support system that they can go to. Um, and at the same time, it's putting somebody in a in a position to succeed, right? So it's through networking, it's through creating a network of people, um, professional, personal, whatever it may be, mentorship. Um, that again, it doesn't have to be advocacy and human trafficking. That's not always the answer, right? It's finding whatever passion that they had, whether it may be before their victimization or a new passion that they've developed following their victimization. I think those are the those are the types of um, situations that I, I really enjoy um, seeing uh, from from my peers. You said that you like to identify gaps, and because of your lived experience, you know the gaps. And now, because of your knowledge of the law and the criminal justice system, you know how to fill the gaps. So, what are the gaps you see? Yeah, good question. Um, I think first and foremost, I think within the criminal justice system. Often what happens is um, toward the end of a case, um, there is a, there's a, I would say there's a subject called restitution. Restitution is the idea that when somebody is harmed and they have lost wages, right, or they have lost property um, or property may have been stolen from them, right? Restitution is an opportunity for the court uh, to, to basically uh, make a ruling that a defendant or an offender, somebody who had taken those goods from them, taken their wages, there's an opportunity to, to pay that money back or pay, to pay that property back in a way. Um, the idea sounds great in theory, but when applied in the restitution, uh, in applied in the criminal justice system, uh, the issue is that the offenders, for the most part, do not have a means to pay or they have been able to fabricate or, or put themselves in a position um, by way of their attorneys maybe that makes it easy for them to escape that obligation. In the criminal justice system, uh, the, when it comes to human trafficking, the biggest prioritization is incarceration. It's holding that offender accountable, and as it should, right? Holding an offender accountable, protecting our community, keeping our community safe by removing this individual from society. Uh, when that individual is put into in, in incarcerated and they have become incarcerated, it then becomes much, much harder for them to pay back the debt that they owe to society. And by society, I'm meaning that victim or their family or the individuals that they've affected. Um, so when restitution, one of the things I mentioned earlier is um, a gap, and I'll share that a gap that is often seen from victims is the idea of being financially stable. It's access to a job, 
It's access to equitable pay. It's access to vocational or educational programming that allows them to elevate their status from just being a regular day laborer um, to later move into a field or career um, to, that, that provides long-term um, growth financially. So when restitution is not prioritized, it becomes much harder for that individual to find a means to become financially stable. When we look at, you know, an example I can give you is when we look at civil litigation and we look at the, the, the civil side of, of the law, when somebody is harmed or they're wronged um, and you file somebody in civil court, restitution is uh, the idea of restitution or, or paying back what you owe as a result of a court ruling is prioritized much at a much higher level, at a much higher rate. Um, so it's really trying to find that gap and trying to identify ways and solutions the criminal justice system can find ways to, to ensure that um, those victims are, are compensated or those victims are, are put in, are given resources to, to reach a status of financial stability. When did you actually know the moment that uh, the system was working for you? You know, a system that you didn't even know about, like you were controlled by someone, you were just so used up that it affected your health and you were thinking, I want to meet my parents one last time. And then you had a co-worker who helped you and you got out and began to use the system to your advantage. So when did you even realize that you were free? What was that moment like? To be honest with you, I think when the, for me personally, I think when uh, this, this individual, this trafficker was arrested um, and I was starting to, to receive communication from the local prosecutor's office, providing assurance that this individual is not going to come back, uh, provide, like providing concrete information to me, telling me that this individual is a fraud. Everything that I was taught and over the last couple of years was fabricated, right? Um, obviously, it's not just verbal. It's uh, because of the, again, the amount of time invested in trying to get me to believe this individual's identity and their background and all that stuff. The first uh, step for me was denial. But uh, through law enforcement, just providing that assurance, being able to to really explain uh, what the situation was, um, it, it took it took many months uh, for me to realize what situation I was in. I mean, I can tell you, and I'm, I'm sure others have who have been victimized can can also share that. I think a very strange moment for me was, I would say, about a month after I, I left my victimization. I I didn't know what else to do with my time. Right, I didn't want to just be at home. Uh, or else I'd be alone with my thoughts, right? I'd be alone and just reflecting. And I didn't feel like that was productive at the time, right? Um, so a month after I left that victimization, I got a job, right? Um, and I think the, when as soon as I got my first paycheck, um, I, I, I had a routine of, there was a certain way that I used to pay my traffickers. So I, I made the arrangements the same way. Um, you know, I used to put the money in an envelope and it used to be, I used to have a little note. And then I realized as I was walking uh, I was walking out of my job. Um, that's when I realized, like, oh, this is my money. What do I do with it? So I had to call some. I had to call some friends, and I said, "What do I do with this money? This is so much money. I've, I haven't actually <laughs> had this money before, right?" So many of them had to had to share with me, like, "This is your money. You need to find a way to, you know, to keep it, you know, and hold on to it, and don't just, you know, spend it all somewhere. You know, find a way to 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 save that money, right?" So it was very awkward, I would say, some of those stages because, again. When somebody is trafficked, right, and uh, many of the people I, I've worked with, right, um, we all have all have that kind of sharing. It's when again, you're put you're you're putting yourself in a almost a different reality. You know, the reality that we we look at and we interact every day and we're we're speaking to, it's a different reality that victims face, right? Um, they're seeing everything through through a different lens, and it's unfortunately through the lens of the trafficker, whatever the trafficker has taught them or or influenced them in a way to think or or believe. So when you're out of that lens and you're in an independent lens, you're in a, in, in, in a sense of what we call freedom, right? Um, it's, it's very challenging. You're learning how to talk again. You're learning how to, in some aspects, interact. You're learning how to, how to trust again. You're learning how to love again, right? There's so many different things that, that take, again, this is a, a lifelong journey that, that many, many individuals face, right? Um, there are, certainly there are bumps in the road and there are times where we have to reassess and reflect and ask ourselves, is the situation we're in, are we putting ourselves in a, in a state of re-victimization, 
And if so, what are some ways that we can manage, right? And that's where, again, I call on those systems to be able to step up and provide those resources in a responsive way. I know that you will keep at it. You will succeed every single day and with every law that you make better and implement. And when you get your law degree, I don't even know the sky's the limit. So hopefully, um, you know, our paths will cross again. My last question to you is that what does the future of freedom look like to you? I think the future of freedom is subjective, right? It's subjective to everyone's perspective. Um, from my own perspective, I think the future of freedom, um, it's realizing how much, I, I think, especially if, if somebody's wanting to get into this field or work in a different field, right? No matter what they want to do with their life. It's the freedom and understanding that nobody, no matter who it is, um, should be in a place to, to control them, to control their ideas, to, to really be in a place where they have the opportunity to express themselves. Um, one thing I can share around, um, you know, I think the systems that we've had, you know, the systems that, that have been built, whether they be public systems or private systems, they've been built in a way where the guidelines are put in place to teach somebody how they're supposed to ask for services how they're supposed to go out and be their own advocates, right? Um, and they, in order for somebody to get counseling, in order for somebody to get access to housing, in order for somebody to get legal services, they have to go and they have to be their own advocate and fill out applications and be in a place where they're basically vouching for themselves. What I envision for the future of freedom is it's an equitable, it's even playing field where we're not just, we as systems, we're not meeting where individuals are at. Uh, it's not just that, but we're loving them for where they can be, right? We're putting ourselves in a position where um, we're, we're allowing that individual to, to be at the driver's seat, to be at the, at the uh, uh, be the operator of their own life, of what services they wanna accept, of what opportunities they wanna pursue, um, and not putting ourselves in a position where, uh, you know, uh, where we have to be our own advocates, but it's instead for freedom. And I would say for survivors, I think often for, for many of us in, in this movement, uh, the one thing that that many of the uh, advocates before me have been saying, we, we want a seat at the table. A seat at the table simply means being at the same seat as other policymakers, as legislators, as those that are carrying out these laws. But for me, the future is not, not sitting at the table, but leading the table. Uh, because the, in order for us to do this work meaningfully, it starts with partnerships with survivors of, of human trafficking. Thank you, Suleiman Masood. Uh, you know, you began with a beautiful poem about a rose that can grow in concrete. I hope your rose becomes a rose bush and many roses bloom. Uh, good luck with everything you do. Thank you. I'm Ruchira Gupta, and thank you for listening to A Free Voice. Subscribe to our podcast to get notifications of new episodes or check us out at ruchiragupta.com. The podcast is produced by Ram Devineni with Ratapalix and Bowery Poetry. Special thanks to Leela Kapoor and Anika Kothari. This podcast series is funded by the Citizen Diplomacy Action Fund, which is sponsored by the U.S. Department of State and implemented by Global Ties U.S., in partnership with the Office of Alumni Affairs in the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. Additional support from New York State Council on the Arts, Governor of New York State and the New York State Legislature.